0: Welcome to Hidden Cities, a podcast about the invisible infrastructure that shapes urban spaces and experiences. Rather than looking at cities from a design perspective, Hidden Cities explores how policy and legislation inform our built environment. This series is about affordable housing, and in each episode, I speak with an expert about a policy or economic approach that impacts housing. Think of Hidden Cities as a kind of idiot's guide to housing affordability, where I, an idiot in this field, speak with experts to make these often complex policies understandable. This episode draws together many of the themes raised in previous episodes and places them in the context of the Australian dream of home ownership. I spoke with Dallas Rogers, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney's School of Architecture, Design and Planning, who also runs his own podcasts, City Road Pod and The Housing Journal podcast. Dallas talked to me about his book, The Geopolitics of Real Estate, how global trends in housing are being felt in Australia, and how settler-colonial relationships continue to underpin how real estate is understood and how it shapes the stories we tell about our homes and ownership. Our previous episode with Leila Nifara explored housing financialisation, so I wanted to understand if this was relevant to the Australian experience. I asked Alice to explain the difference between housing financialisation and commodification.
1: So that will depend on the way that you define financialisation. Some people would challenge my view and my, my definition of financialization.
0: Seeing as Dallas is an expert here, I think we'll go with his definition.
1: Things that I call the commodification of housing. So things to do with uh, the way that you place housing in a market of exchange. So the way that housing operates in a housing market, they would call some of the more abstract processes um, in that system financialization. Um, and so if you take that view we um, we have seen a, a f- you know a sizable amount of financialization there's certainly the penetration of complex financial instruments into our housing system um, mortgages themselves are just uh, the penetration of a financial instrument not necessarily a overly complex one um, but if you if you do accept my definition of financialization which is this very abstract process where you're where you're creating a distance from the actual um, asset, the housing itself, then I actually don't think we've seen as much as places like the US um, and, and other places. So it kind of comes down to the way that you talk about financialization.
0: So based on your definition, does that mean that Australia has more of a commodified housing system?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's highly commodified. It's a highly commodified housing system. And all of, you know, for a long time, since the middle of um, last century, government policy has been encouraging people to financialize their housing um, through things like negative gearing and other things. Um, yeah, so I think that's definitely the case. And there, there is another category that sometimes people put between commodification and financialization and that is hyper commodification i know that this is getting into like you know abstract academic terms but hyper commodification people talk about when the kind of industries that sit around housing so construction and all the legal processes that you need to make real estate Um, markets work and solicitors and lawyers and all of the conveyances and all of that, all of those become little economies in themselves as well. And so, yeah, so there's this kind of... we're, We're definitely got a highly commodified housing system. We definitely think about houses as kind of a commodity in a housing market. That's definitely what happens. Of course, we think about them in their use value. Many people live in them as well. But that commodification dimension is very strong in Australia. And we have a very hyper-commodified housing system. All of those industries that sit around housing, construction, development, um, all the lawyers, the conveyances, they're, they're kind of important economies that kind of bolster that system as well which makes it very hard to change your housing system because as soon as you start to the housing market itself is a massive economy and all those little micro economies that sit around it they're not not even micro economies they're economies as well um all get affected when you try to kind of amend things to deal with housing affordability and stuff as well so that's why there's a lot it's a highly politicized issue housing because every time you try to intervene in it you're kind of you know, the tentacles run quite deep.
0: So it sounds like Dallas isn't going to offer me an easy policy solution to housing affordability in Australia. But I wanted to understand what policies had enabled this commodification that currently defines the sector. Dallas's research has looked at the history of settler colonialism and its impact on real estate. So I wanted to know how the settler state relates to housing commodification and the idea of the Australian dream.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of kind of big turns in um, kind of Australia's real estate history, if you like. Uh, the first one, of course, is European invasion and literally dispossessing Aboriginal people of the land. That is the foundation for all property and all housing in Australia. So that is an important starting point for this discussion. Um Then we move through the kind of long 19th century with a whole bunch of experimentation with land. So first trying to use land for agricultural purposes. And from pretty early on in Sydney, uh, from the time of Macquarie, Macquarie is trying to stop people from effectively putting land into a market of exchange. He... Um, tries a couple of different things because he, he's giving land to people so that they can grow stuff to sustain the economy and very soon they start trading in land. But it, it's, it flicks pretty quickly to uh, a land market which travels up. We get the two world wars which kind of various things are happening around the, uh, those times. Just after the Second World War, uh, many people call this the golden era of public housing. So the welfare state is a kind of popular idea. Uh, We build a whole bunch of public housing uh, for young working families. And then from um, not too long after that, we get um, a whole range of government policies and incentives for moving people into home ownership. And it actually becomes property and home ownership becomes a kind of Australian idea and it comes part of like nation building kind of um narratives that you know this is this is how you build it and the nation you get people to buy homes you get people to fit them out with furniture you get people to buy a car or a refrigerator um and stuff like that
0: was there a particular time in Australia's history where housing as investment became normalized or has it always been part of Australia's narrative
1: uh not so much about When it became uh, normalized, I think it was a product of incentivization of home ownership and that wages were relatively good compared to how much it cost to buy a house. And then people paid off their homes relatively quickly. And then they had all of this idle wealth uh, sitting in their homes and they just started to redeploy it. Um, to buy investment properties, and there there were actually um, something I do write about is I've done some analysis of in the seventies uh, real estate investment books. So there was a whole bunch of best selling books about, and literally what they would talk about in there is buy a home and then leverage the um, the capital in your home to buy another home and to basically become a kind of mum and dad landlord. And so there was definitely a kind of public narrative about that. And those books would teach you, coach you into like how, what policies were relevant, how you should set these up, what the best way to get tax exemptions on certain things. So I think that there was a whole kind of public narrative and a set of kind of public kind of figures that that promoted Um, the idea of becoming not only a homeowner, but becoming a mum and dad landlord as well. Uh, And I think that's part of the story about how uh, we get to where we are today.
0: And I know you've done some research on the relationship between foreign investment and the ideas of the settler state. What impact does foreign investment have on housing prices?
1: So my kind of position on this is when did foreign investment start in Australia? Well, 1788, when, you know, Britain invaded, (laughs) Uh, they started moving money into land not very long after that. There's, there's a whole kind of history in the long 19th century of, you know, selling land in London. Um, And, you know, part of the reason why they set up the Torrens system is to make, easier to trade land over longer distances.
0: If you've heard this term before but aren't sure what it actually means, the Torrens system is a land register and transfer system where the state creates and maintains a register of land holdings. This register serves as evidence of title, i.e. ownership, of the person recorded on the register.
1: So there is a whole history of moving foreign capital through Australian land and real estate that goes back a very long time. The work i've done and that that was kind of a, a key argument of my book was actually to outline that history because what we get when we in about 2012 the ident- the cultural identity of the foreign investor switch so we've had foreign investment trickling along from europe from new zealand from america uh, and what happened in 2000 and about 2012 is the cultural identity of the foreign investor changed. It went from essentially European looking investors to Asian looking investors. And right at the time that the uh, Chinese investment overtook other countries, we saw a pretty interesting shift in the debate about foreign investment. So now foreign investment was something to be reported on something that needs to be in the news and, you know, increasing narratives about, you know, Chinese people buying up our land. And I was just very interested in this kind of um, how the, the shifting cultural identity could kind of shift um, public conversation. And what, what happened after that, of course, is that Chinese investment rose quite steeply um, and the public debate rose with it. And then uh, last year, for a number of reasons, the um, Chinese investment has dropped off and the public debate has has dropped off too. So I was very interested in this kind of, the cultural dynamic at play in this kind of foreign investment debate to do with the kind of rise and fall, boom and bust in Chinese capital and um, kind of just locating that debate back into a whole bunch of other debates that we've had about Chinese people coming to Australia particularly around the gold rush uh, era as well Um, so yeah that was was kind of my primary focus of kind of thinking through that issue.
0: And now an easy one (laughs) Um, what policy interventions could be introduced to mitigate or limit the commodification of housing or is it more about changing the narrative of the Australian dream?
1: Yeah so I am not somebody who thinks that the, we can solve the housing market issues with just policy levers. I think that policy levers get us somewhere, um, and there are there are a lot of them that affect housing. There are financial, taxation, uh, planning. There are levers at the federal level, at the state level, and that's a complex kind of beast. But I think to actually to get any change in that space, we actually need to change the kind of, as you say, the narrative about who we are, what we believe in, what we think housing is for. Um, And so that's kind of been a big direction in my research is to, to, to literally point to the ways that kind of what I call real estate subjectivities, which is just a fancy word for, you know, the way we think about real estate um where those ideas come from how they're formed who who informs them and and the idea that we just come up with them ourselves or that they're pre-existing or that they're natural whether that it's natural to uh, own a house and to leverage the capital in that to buy an investment property the idea that that's a natural thing for an australian to do the idea that that's an australian value just to kind of like unpack that and to say actually those ideas were created for you. They were created it through a social project, and we can find the roots of that social project. And so I've kind of done that. Um the book is kind of trying to do that over a long timeline. Uh, and it starts, you know, in the colonial period. I I talk a lot about those foreign investment books in the 60s and 70s where people were buying they were, some of them were best sellers and people were buying them and reading them. And like that's literally how you get the ideas in your head to become a property investor, like they are put there. And those ideas, are, are, those books are t- telling you about government policy. So they're actually, the government policy is important because someone's telling you how to use them to, in, to invest in the house. And the digital real estate stuff is very, very interesting because what happens is all the first... But the first kind of round of digital technologies kind of takes these ideas that were in these books all the ways to leverage real estate and just digitizes them and creates digital products that create the same kind of ideas about real estate and kind of reproduce this idea about, you know, uh, what it is to be Australian, what, you know, um, what it is to be a property investor. Um, And so I've been trying to, kind of think about how we would create a different narrative about housing and what that would look like and how we can use that because I think if we change our ideas about home and about housing and the housing market then we can actually put some pressure on politicians to change some of the policy levers that's my position some people think you actually you just you produce research about the failure of policy and you give it to policymakers and you show them the evidence and they will change their mind. I think that's only part of the story. You also need a political campaign to change people, to get a constituency around the need for change as well. And you need to have those two things in play. And I've largely been following a kind of research project that looks at, like, how would we change the debate? And therefore, my empirical investigation is in... in, how did we get these ideas in our head? How, where, where did those ideas come from?
0: Hopefully Dallas has helped you understand a bit about where these ideas have come from. If you're interested in his work, you can hear him discuss more on his podcast, City Road Pod, or find more of his work at dallasrogers.live.